We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29, if we get through them all. Let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you help us to understand it clearly and to live by it. Thank you for giving us so much of your word. Thank you for revealing to us who you are and who we are and how we can be reunited in relationship with you for all of eternity, how we can be forgiven of our sins and be saved and live and be adopted as your children. We love you, Father. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. So we just began to hint on this uh, last week. Um, If you'll remember... uh, verse 13 says enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction and there are many who go through it how narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it and so we we touched on that last week and then this week we're going to be we're going to be pushing on through we're going to keep on going but here's this idea that jesus said that the road to heaven is has a narrow gate that most people will not enter through it and that it is a difficult road to walk and then he expands upon that as he wraps up his sermon on the mount because what is the most important thing to talk about when you give a long teaching and a long sermon to all these people is to wrap up by telling them how you can be saved and so he goes on to say in verse 15 be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. So Jesus tells us how we will recognize. He doesn't tell us yet. He's about to. He's about to tell us how we will recognize false prophets. So without answering out loud, just think to yourself, how do you think Jesus said we can recognize a false teacher? Someone say, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm, preachers are teachers. So imagine, and imagine Jesus is talking to, to this large crowd of people, thousands of people, and he tells them that there will be many false teachers who will come along, and then he tells how you can recognize a false teacher. And so just take a second in your mind and think, how do you think Jesus said you can recognize a false teacher? Or in other words, ask yourself, how do you recognize a false teacher? How would you recognize a false teacher? This is what Jesus said. He said, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Notice he didn't say by their teaching. Why? Because that's the whole point of being deceived by a false teacher. They can make their teaching sound very legitimate. They can coax their teaching to make it sound true. So you can be tricked by their teaching. Jesus said, but I'll give you a sign that you can look for that you won't be tricked. Look at their fruit. How do they live? Are they sinful? Do they live a sinful life? Or do they live a holy life? What are their works? What are their fruit? What is the evidence of their faith? And he goes on to say that are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Now I'm going to jump way ahead in the sermon to the end and kind of and just give you the, the punchline right here. 
Why is it that Jesus teaches that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit? Meaning, um, look at their life. Look how they live. The reason is because when a person is genuinely saved, they receive the Holy Spirit within them. And when the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, who is God, comes to live within you and changes you and makes you into a new person, Jesus is saying it's impossible for the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within you and then you continue to just live a sinful life. The Holy Spirit will change you. The Holy Spirit will produce fruit. And in other words, what Jesus is saying is if there's no fruit, if there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit, then that's a bad tree, not a good tree. And all the bad trees will be cut off and thrown into the fire. So Jesus actually warns his followers that when all of these false teachers come and claim that they have revelation from God, a claim that this is what God is teaching or this is what God wants you to do, he said the way you're going to recognize them is not always by what the words that come out of their mouth, but the actions and the way they live. How they live their life is the way you recognize someone as a false teacher. And I can give you all kinds of examples, but we're going to hold that for a little bit later. Matthew 7, 21, he goes on to say some of the most frightening words in all of Scripture if you're a Christian. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who, and I purposely left this blank here for just a second. But I just want you to say before we get to it, Jesus, I want you to notice that Jesus said, Not everyone who professes Jesus as their Lord not even the people who profess to Jesus himself that he is their Lord. And what I, what I mean by that is there, you can imagine somebody who lives a double life and they know it. You can imagine somebody, let's just imagine somebody who is um, a well-known preacher. I'm not going to name any names, but let's just say a, a well-known preacher. I'm not, I, the reason I'm not naming any names is because I'm not thinking of a specific person. Let me, let me clear that up. I don't have a specific person in mind. Don't worry. We'll get to specific people later. I'm just not in this example. I'm not, I don't have one in mind. But imagine the scenario of a pastor who really doesn't believe anything that he teaches, but he knows that if he teaches it a certain way, he can get extremely rich, and that's really all he cares about. Let's imagine that person. Now, I don't have that person in my mind, but let's just imagine that person. Just because they call Jesus their Lord doesn't make Jesus their Lord. We understand that, right? But notice what Jesus said here. He said, not everyone who says to me. In other words, he's not just talking about people who in, in public want to convince other people that they follow Jesus. He said, literally, peop, not every person who says to me. Lord, Lord. In other words, people who literally are talking to Jesus and call Jesus himself their Lord. He says not every one of those will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not every one of those people are saved. He says, but only who? Now, the reason I left this blank is because I want you to ask yourself how you would finish that sentence based on how you understand salvation, based on how you understand who's saved and who's not saved and what you've believed your whole life, if this is what you were saying, not everyone who calls Jesus their Lord will, will be saved and enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who what? And don't say it out loud. 
But how would you naturally finish that sentence? If you were telling someone, if you were having a conversation with someone who you believed was lost, and you're trying to explain to them, look, everybody who says they're a Christian is not really a Christian. Everybody who says that Jesus, that they follow Jesus and that they believe in Jesus and goes to church, they're not all saved. But only the one who, how would you finish that sentence? This is what Jesus said. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Is that how you would have finished that sentence? If you were talking to somebody that you believed was lost, and you were trying to tell them how to be saved, is that what you would have said? Not everyone who calls Jesus Lord is saved. Not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is saved, but only the one who actually does his will is saved. Is that how you would have finished that sentence? See, the reason I'm pointing that out is because that's what we fall into. If we would never say what Jesus actually said, the problem doesn't lie with Jesus, the problem lies with us. If I would never have said this, if, if talking to people and trying to help them to come into the kingdom and be saved, if I would have never, if, that, if those words would have never come out of my mouth and I would have never told anybody, only the people who actually do God's will will be saved. Then the problem isn't with Jesus. The problem is my understanding. The problem is my understanding of who's saved and who's not saved. And that's what we have to wrestle with with the scriptures. Anytime we have a view or a belief or we hold on to something that we are convinced is true, anytime we read something in the scripture that we say to ourselves, if I was writing this, I would have not said that. That's when we know we've got to wrestle with our understanding of the scripture, not the other way around. We don't just push it to the side and say, well, I don't believe that, so I'm not going to say it. We have to wrestle with ourselves. Why would I not have said that? Why, would, why is it that I would never have said, but the one who does the will of, my, of, of God, instead of saying, but the one who believes? Because that's the 99% answer that you're going to get from every Christian in the United States who is, calls himself an evangelical Protestant Christian. They would have said, not everyone who says Jesus is Lord, not everyone who says they're a Christian is saved, but only the one who believes in Jesus. That's what most 99% of people would say. But that's not what Jesus taught. Why is that? Well, we're going we're gonna to look at it. Now, he says, do the will of my Father in heaven. That means action. That's actually acting. That's doing, not just knowledge. It's not just knowledge. It's actually action. It's actions versus speech. So have you ever told anyone, calling Jesus your Lord won't get you into heaven if you don't actually do God's will? Have you ever told anyone that? And my guess is that most people would resoundingly say, no, I've never said that. But that's exactly what Jesus taught. After his long sermon on the mount, that's exactly what he taught people about who will be saved and who will not be saved. Calling Jesus your Lord won't get you into heaven if you don't actually do God's will. Now, notice what Jesus did actually say. Now, this is important. What he did say is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Why is that important? Because that's the group of people he's talking about. 
He's only talking about the group of people that actually call him Lord. He's not talking about people who don't call him Lord. That's so crucial to understand this. Because Jesus is not teaching that people who don't call him Lord can do God's will and be saved. You can't be saved by works. Jesus is not teaching that you can be saved by works. No amount of doing God's will can save you if you don't believe Jesus is Lord. Can we, can we under, agree to that? No amount of doing the will of God can save you if you don't call Jesus Lord. If you don't have faith in Jesus, it doesn't matter how much of God's will you obey. You cannot be saved because you cannot be saved by works. That's why the Jewish people that Jesus was teaching, the Jewish people, if they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, no matter how much they obeyed the law and did the works of the law of Moses, no matter how much they did that, they still can't be saved if they don't accept Jesus as the Messiah, as their Lord. So Jesus is only talking about those who call him Lord. That's important. In that group of people who call him Lord, Jesus is saying, in that group, everyone is not actually saved. Only the ones who actually do the will of God in the group of people who call me Lord are saved. So what Jesus teaches is that you can say with your mouth that he's your Lord and it not actually be true. And so then the question is, how? How is that possible? How is it that you can call Jesus your Lord and him not actually be your Lord? And so we're going to look at that. <clears throat> Jesus said in Luke thirteen three. this is important because this idea of doing the will of God, this is the same as, as, as when we talk about repent. So when we say repent, what we mean is to stop turn from sin well if you turn from sin what are you turning to you're turning to a life you're turning from a life of sin you're turning to a life of holiness because sin is the opposite of holy holy is the opposite of sin so anything that's not sin can be described as holy not exactly but you get the idea two ends of the spectrum sin holiness so if I'm turning from sin, I'm turning to a life of holiness, which means I'm doing what God wants me to do. Because when I sin, I'm doing what God doesn't want me to do. I'm not doing the will of my Father. Is that clear? When you're living in sin, you're not doing the will of your Father. But when you repent and turn from sin, now you are doing the will of your Father. Okay? So Jesus is talking about repentance here. And repentance is a non-negotiable for Jesus. Jesus says repentance is non-negotiable. He says in Luke 13, 3, he says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And you say, well, maybe that's not exactly what he meant. Maybe you're taking that out of context. Well, this is Luke 13, 3. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Two verses later, Luke 13, 5, he says again, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Ready? 13, 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. 13, 5, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. I don't know of anywhere else in the Scriptures Jesus does this. 
I don't know of anywhere else where he says it, and then he comes right back two verses later and just says it again. In other words, Jesus is saying, you got to get this. This is important. This is not to be swept under the rug. This is not just, just one of my many, many teachings that I want you to follow. He's like, you've got to get this. If you don't repent, you will perish. Jesus says repentance is a non-negotiable. So let's jump back to our passage. Matthew 7, we just finished with verse 21. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I never knew you means you were never saved. Do we see that? In other words, he's not saying you were saved and then later because you did something bad, you were lost. He said, I never knew you. You were never saved. You called me Lord, Lord, but we never had a relationship. You were never saved. So even though they believed they were saved because they called Jesus their Lord. And even though many other people may have believed they were saved, and even though many other people may have reassured them they were saved. You see how dangerous this gets? Even though other people in their lifetime may have reassured them, don't worry, you're saved. They were never saved. the evidence of that fact that they were never saved, that people could have seen in this life, because you can't see someone's soul. Can you see your soul? Can you see my soul? can't see your soul. Can you see the Holy Spirit regenerate your soul? None of us knows what that looks like on the inside, but Jesus said there's a way we can look on the outside to see. There's symptoms, there's signs, there's evidence. He calls it fruit. But the person who never knew Jesus, who was never saved, who never received the Holy Spirit, there was a sign in their life that people could have observed and said, hey, you know what? According to what Jesus taught, you may not be saved. It was the fact that they were lawbreakers. It means they never turned from sin. What is, it, what is the word for turning from sin? Repentance. So if they never repented, they never turned from sin, they never did God's will, that's the evidence they never received the Holy Spirit and they were never saved. <clears throat> so Jesus makes it very clear. He goes on, verse 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. In other words, Jesus is clearly teaching here the exact same thing he just finished teaching about the relationship between faith and repentance, faith and works. That everyone who hears his teachings and actually obeys them is like one who builds his house on a rock. You see that? Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine, these teachings about who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, and everything that he's taught in the Sermon on the Mount, 
everyone who hears these words and acts on them, not professes them, not says them from their mouth, but actually acts on them, will be like a man, a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. So here again, everyone who hears Jesus' teachings and doesn't obey them, regardless of what comes from their mouth, if you hear the teachings of Jesus, if you hear that he says you have to repent, and you don't obey them, regardless of what you say, you can tell people, people can say that they're saved, and they can tell people that Jesus is their Lord, but if they don't obey Jesus' teachings, then they can't truly say that Jesus is their Lord. Why? Because Lord means what? Lord means master. Lord literally means one you obey. That's literally what the word means. Most people say Jesus is my Savior and Lord, but they really only mean I want Jesus to be my Savior. I have no desire for him to be my Lord. If you don't actually act on his teachings, meaning if you don't actually obey him, then you're like a foolish person who built his house on the sand. Verse 26, But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Why did the house collapse? Because it was built on a lie. People said Jesus was their Lord, but they never obeyed him which means he wasn't really their Lord, so they were lying. And if you're lying and you build your house on a lie, it's not going to stand on the day of judgment. The winds and the waves that crash against the house is the day of judgment. So when the day of judgment comes and it pounds everybody's house, only the houses that are built on the rock, Jesus as their Lord, only those houses will stand. Every other house that's built on a lie will collapse, and it will collapse with a great crash. Jesus said, calling him your Lord doesn't make him your Lord. Doing what he tells you makes him your Lord. Verses 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. So how is this possible? So Jesus, what Jesus has taught is clear. What's not clear for us is how is that possible? So if that's what Jesus said, Jesus said, everybody who calls me Lord is not actually saved. And if you don't actually repent, you don't actually do the will of God, if you don't actually act on the words that I say, then you're not saved. How is that possible? It's another way of saying... If Jesus said, uh, if we are saved by faith, all right, let me ask you this. If we are saved by faith and not by works, then how is it possible to profess Jesus as our Lord and him not be our Lord unless we obey him? I know that was a mouthful. It's another way of saying that, 
let me, do I have it? Okay. Here you go. It's a mouthful, so let me just, I, I, I wrote it out for you. If you are saved by faith and not by works, which is what I stand up here and, and say every, all the time, okay? If you are saved by faith and not by works, how is it possible that you can profess Jesus as your Lord and not be saved unless you have works? Doesn't that seem like a contradiction? If I stand up here and say you are saved by faith and not by works, but then I also say that you can say Jesus is your Lord, but you're not saved unless you have works. That seems to be a contradiction, but it's not. I I, I don't believe it's a contradiction. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture and then try to understand why it's not. Galatians 2.16, I'm, I'm giving you two passages of Scripture that in my, in my account seem to be completely opposite on this topic, okay? This, this is the two examples that I think are the best examples of the complete opposite stance on this topic. Paul said to the Galatians, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. So that... No, this was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. So Paul said that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Agreed? But by faith in Jesus Christ. Agreed? He said, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So that was very clear. Obeying the law does not and cannot save anyone. Only faith in Jesus, only by faith in Jesus can we be saved. But then James says, in James 2.24, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Do those seem to be completely contradictory? And yet we know a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's why even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. And then James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you ask yourself, if that's a complete contradiction, then how in the world am I supposed to understand how people are to be saved? Here's the thing. Here's the good news. It's not a contradiction. Let me explain why. So, notice what James does not say, and notice what James does say. He says, alone. Why is that important? Because what James is clearly teaching is that if you say, and you can read this in the entire context of James chapter 2, James chapter 3, you can, you can read the complete context of this. James is teaching, if you say you have faith and don't have works, you are not saved. If you say with your mouth you have faith and you have no works as evidence of that faith, James says, you're not really saved. So, that's what he means by faith alone, is that faith without any evidence of works. So here's a good definition. 
a saved person, and I'm sure I could, I'm sure y'all are much better with words than me, and y'all could figure out a, a much shorter way to put this, write this. But here's the thing: a saved person is a person who is saved by their faith in Jesus Christ. That's how you're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, who has works as the evidence of the Holy Spirit who has come to live within them and has made them into a new creation. That's the picture of what the Bible describes and the New Testament describes is what, how do you define a saved person? A saved person is saved by their faith who has, evident, who has works as evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit has come to live within them and has changed them into a new creation. So when you have genuine faith, the Holy Spirit comes to live within you, and that Holy Spirit changes you, makes you into a new person, person, and as a result of the actual Holy Spirit of God in you, regenerating you, works is evidence of that. You can't have the Holy Spirit come within you, make you into a new creation, and not have works as evidence, is what James teaches. It's the same thing Jesus taught. Jesus said, everyone who calls me Lord, I don't know. Everyone who calls me Lord is not saved. Only the one who actually does the will of my Father. It's the same thing James teaches. You can say you have faith, but if there's no evidence, if there's no works, then that's all, that's all it is. It's a lie. You're just saying he's your Lord. He's not. So if you're missing either of those two things, you're not saved. If you're missing faith in Jesus, you, could, you can have faith in any other religion. You can have faith as, as a Jew, who rejects Jesus as the Messiah. If you, have, if you don't have faith in Jesus, you're not saved. If you don't have works as evidence of the Holy Spirit within you, you're not saved. <clears throat> James is very consistent with that teaching, and so is Paul. Let's look at James first, then we'll look at Paul. James chapter 2, 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? You see? You see the clear context here? James says, if you claim to have faith, but you don't have works, there's no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit of God within you. There's no evidence. If you claim to have faith, but you don't have works, can such faith save him? The answer is no. In the same way that Jesus taught that saying he's your Lord doesn't make him your Lord. James teaches the same thing. That saying something doesn't make it true. And by the way, we don't have time to get into this, but this is, this, this is a biblical rebuke. What I'm about to give you, the next couple verses, the next couple verses I'm going to give you is a biblical rebuke of the Word of Faith movement. I don't know if you're familiar with the Word of Faith movement. If you turn on Trinity Broadcasting Network, if you turn on TBN, you're just going to get bombarded with Word of Faith all day long. Most of the pastors on TBN are Word of Faith pastors. And what they believe and teach is that because God spoke everything into existence through his words, and his words had faith, that words can bring things into existence. And we are made in God's image, and they take that out of context, and they say, extrapolate to say, we are therefore little gods. Not made in the image of God, they go heretically to say that we're made in the kind of God. In other words, we're the same kind, not a different kind made in the same image. We're literally the same kind. We are little gods. And therefore, if we have enough faith, like God had faith when he spoke, if we have enough faith when we speak, 
our words can literally bring things into existence. So what do you hear them teach all the time? If you're not wealthy and you want to be wealthy, then just speak it and speak it with faith. Speak that good, that money is coming to me. Speak that wealth is coming my way. Speak that I will have success. And success is on the doorsteps of my house. And they'll say help. If, if, and speak health into existence. In other words, if you're sick, if your doctor told you you had cancer, then you speak and say, I do not have cancer, and I am not sick, and I am healthy. And you just speak things into existence because you are a little God. And by being a little God, you have the power of God in your words and that you can speak reality into existence. And I'm telling you, James says that is complete nonsense. You don't have the power to speak things into existence. God does. So when you want healing, when you need financial help, when you need all these things that these TBM preachers are telling you to speak them into existence, and they'll come as long as you have enough faith. God says, no, 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 no. God said, I can speak things into existence, not you. You pray to me. You ask me. And so we're not supposed to be trying to play God We're supposed to be coming to him humbly as his child and say, Father, you can speak things into existence. You can do things in my life. You can bring me what I need. Therefore, I'm asking you, please give me my needs. But I trust you. And if you don't give me what I want, then I'm content with that. Because the scripture teaches we must be content. We are not to be discontent. We are to be content whether we have a little or whether we have a lot. And whether we're in good health, whether we're not in good health, we're to be content with what God has chosen. We're to come to him as his father, not to play God ourselves. It, I, I really, if this is something that interests you at all, or at all is a confusion at all about these preachers, by all means, please ask me when, when I'm not up here preaching. Ask me any time, and we'll have a conversation about word of faith and why it's not biblical, and why it brings them so much money, but yet it takes so much money from the poor all around the country who are really struggling. Um, but this, this idea, this is what James says. You ready? In other words, you can't speak things into existence. You, can't, you don't have the power to speak things into existence. Here's James. says it right here. James two fifteen and 17. He says, If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. But you don't give them what the body needs. What good is it? In other words, take take the, the, the common, the average TBN preacher. This is exactly what he'll tell you to say. If you don't have clothes that you need, if you don't have the food that you need, or if if somebody comes to you and they have a need, then you need to speak those things into existence. You need to say, be warm, be well-fed. I am warm. I am well-fed. That's exactly what they will teach you to say and do. And James literally says, if you say these things, but you don't actually give them clothes, you don't actually give them food, he says, what good is it? It won't do anything. They won't be warm and they won't be well-fed because you can't speak reality into existence. You can't speak truth into reality. You can't speak reality into existence. He said, in the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. In other words, in the same way that you can say, be warm and be well-fed, but saying it doesn't make it true unless you act on it. He said the same thing with faith. You can say, I have faith, but it doesn't make it true if you don't act on it. If you don't act on it, saying it doesn't make it true. You can't speak 
faith into existence. You can't speak your relationship with Jesus into existence. You have to step into a relationship with Jesus. You have to act on stepping into a relationship with Jesus. You can't just say you have a relationship with Jesus. That doesn't make it true. So here we see James teaches that saying something is true doesn't make it true. But what about Paul? Didn't he seem to say the opposite? Let's look at what he said. Jump back to 2.16. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. What is Paul saying and what is he not saying? This is what he's saying. Paul was Jewish. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul grew up obeying the Mosaic law. Paul said, my whole life I've obeyed the law. I've done the works of the law. What Paul is saying is that you can't be justified by the works of the law. You have to have faith in Jesus. That's why even we ourselves, Paul saying, me a Jewish person who's obeyed the law my whole life, even I have believed in Christ Jesus. So where James was saying, if you say you have faith, but you don't have works, you're not saved. Paul is saying, if you say you have works, but you don't have faith in Jesus, you're not saved. You see how they're talking to two different groups and they're saying, they're not saying a contrary message. They're saying the same message. Paul's saying, you can't be saved by works apart from faith in Jesus. In other words, if you say you have works, but no faith in Jesus, Paul says you're not saved. James says if you say you have faith in Jesus, but no works is evidence of that faith, you're not saved. So they literally both teach the exact same message, that those who are saved are saved by faith in Jesus, and works is the evidence of that. You can't be saved by works. No human being will be saved by works. You're only saved by faith. But it's faith in Jesus that saves you, and works is the evidence of that faith. All right. So here's statement A and statement B. Paul said a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. In statement B, James said a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. To say that one verse or passage of Scripture is true is not to say that another verse or passage of Scripture is false. So to say that statement A is true does not mean statement B is false. To say that statement B is true does not mean that statement A is false. Why? Because they were both given to us after the, after the resurrection of Jesus to the new church by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. They're both what God taught us on how to be saved. They're both equally true. We have to understand that what he's teaching is that you must repent and believe. That you're saved by faith and the evidence of that saving faith is works. And if you don't have one of those two things, you're not saved. So how is it that people can deceive themselves into believing that they have faith when they don't? How is it that so many people can believe Jesus is my Lord when he's not? And I truly believe the main reason is that they are presented a false gospel message. They were given a false gospel. They were given a false invitation. Not the invitation God gave. 
they were given a changed invitation and they accepted a different invitation. They didn't accept the invitation God actually extended. So, let me give you an example. When I decided to propose to my wife, I offered her a ring and asked her if she would marry me. Now, I had a lot of examples I wanted to get into, but time is not going to permit, so we're gonna, I'm going to have to just skip a lot of these examples and try to, try to sum it up to the basic understanding here. What could she do? She could say yes, or she could say no, right? But it's all based on the fact that when I offered that invitation for her to marry me, that she understood the invitation. Does that make sense? If she didn't know what it meant to be asked to be married, if she didn't understand what marriage is, she didn't, like she had no clue, then her saying yes or no doesn't really mean anything because she didn't understand what she was being asked. So if I give you an example, let's pretend she didn't know. Let's pretend that that she has no idea what marriage was growing up. She has no idea. And I said, hey, let's say I get down on the knee and ask her to marry me. And she said, I'm going to have to get back to you. Because she's like, I don't even know what you're doing. I'm going to have to get back to you. Then she goes and talks to one of her friends. And then she tells her friends, hey, uh, my boyfriend asked me to marry him, but I don't really know what that means. Should I, should I marry him or not? And her friend says, yeah, of course you should. Marriage is a breeze. It's a piece of cake. It's so easy. All you got to do is, he's, did he try to give you a ring? Yeah, he tried to give me a ring. Yeah, see, that's it. All you got to do is put the ring on your finger, and then when you go out in public, just tell people you're married. That's it. You don't have to live with him. You don't have to move in with him. You don't have to be faithful with him. You can keep dating other guys. You don't even have to talk to him, except there's a couple good benefits. If you put that ring on your finger and you tell people you're married, then anytime you have a need, and let's say you can't pay your bill, you can always call him up. You can always call him and say, I got a need. Can you help me? And then 40 years down the road, when he dies, you get a big inheritance. I'm telling you, it's the best thing ever. I did it. It's easy. It's a piece of cake. Now, what if that is really what she believed? What if that's what her friend believed? I know it's funny, but the sad part is I'm so terrified. That is literally what the majority of Christians in America today believe. That God has offered an invitation to enter into a covenant relationship with Him. And they think, because they've been told by their friends, even told by their pastors, they think that all I have to do is put a ring on my finger, which means come down and get baptized to tell everybody I'm married. I'm married. Put the ring on. And then I can just go back to my life. I don't have to live with God. I don't have to move in with God. I don't have to have a faithful relationship with God. I can have a very unfaithful relationship with God. And if I need anything, I can go to Him. So if I have a need in life, I hadn't thought about Him in six months, but then something happens and I have a need, He's the first one I'm calling on because because we're married. And then, at the end of my life, I'm going to get a big inheritance. Well, let me just tell you something. If that's what Lindsay believed, and she came to me and said, yes, I'll marry you, and took the ring, 
and then went and told all her friends that she was married. And then all her friends came to me and said, hey, congratulations, Lindsay said y'all are married. I'm so glad. I would then respond and say, whoa, we're not married. She said she would marry me, but she never married me. She said she would enter into a covenant relationship with me, but she didn't. We're not married, and I'm not going to... She's not going to be getting no inheritance because we're not married. That's what I'm afraid so many have done today. They've been presented a false invitation, a false gospel, and they've accepted it, but they not, have not accepted entering into an actual covenant relationship with God. So let me finish by saying this. When someone asks you to marry them, you know what kind of relationship they're asking you to enter into, do you not? And that's a relationship you have to think long and hard about and make a big decision of, am I ready and willing to step into that measure of a covenant relationship with somebody? What kind of relationship is a marriage relationship? What kind is it? It is an exclusively sexual relationship, is what it is. And you say, no, 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 it's much more than that. It's much more than that. And I would say, yes, you're right. It is much, much more than that. Why? Why is it more than that? Because you live, you spend your life together, you live together every day, you laugh together, you cry together, you share your deepest thoughts with each other, you make plans together, you chase dreams together, to which I would say you're absolutely right about all of those things. But she's not the only woman I can do those things with, is she? If something awful were to happen to my parents and they lost everything they had and they moved in with me and Lindsay, at that moment, another woman would be living in my house that I would live together with every day, that I would laugh with, that I would cry with, that I would share deep thoughts with, I would make plans with. She could even help raise the kids. She could use her talents to make money. She could literally, she could clean up around the house. She could literally do, fulfill every single role that we say makes marriage so great. But there's one difference that makes marriage different than every other relationship. And that is the only legitimate relationship in which you can have sexual intimacy. That's what makes marriage, marriage. And when you invite someone into that relationship, they know what you're asking. They know what you're inviting them to say yes or no to. It is an exclusively faithful sexual relationship with this person for the rest of my life. And that's it. I can share all the other things with other people. I can't share that with anybody else. But the problem is when we are inviting people to accept faith in Jesus Christ, we have taken out 
a core part of that invitation that God extended. And we're trying to make it into something less than what it is. And we say, as long as you say Jesus is your Lord, as long as you say you have faith, you don't actually have to repent and turn from sin and be faithful to Him. The faithfulness part, we've taken out. Because the faithfulness part is the turning from sin. That's what the faithfulness part is. And if you take the sexual part out of the marriage relationship and you say, well, marriage can be, you know, everything except sex, that it can just be put a ring on your finger, tell everybody you're married, but you don't have to be faithful to him, then you've completely destroyed what marriage is. Same thing with God. If we say you can say you have faith, you can say he's your Lord, but you don't actually have to act on it. You don't actually have to live it. You don't actually have to turn from sin. We've taken the faithfulness part out of the covenant relationship that God has invited us to. And what happens is we say yes to something he hasn't invited us to. We've said yes to something else. And the problem is going to be when we get to that day of judgment, when we expect to receive that inheritance, and Jesus says, I know you're calling me Lord, but I'm not your Lord because I never knew you, because you were never faithful to me. You never turned from sin. You never repented because you didn't accept the invitation I gave you. You said yes to an invitation that other people gave you, not what I gave you. That is the danger we found ourselves in. That's how people can end up at the end of their life on the day of judgment, and they can say, Lord, Lord, I did miracles in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I, I, I did all these things in your name. And Jesus say, I never knew you. Why? Because your, your spiritual, your level of spiritual, um, I don't know, I'm struggling with words here, but your spiritual works, whatever. Let's start over. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. Okay, I got it out. It does not matter how spiritual you are. You can prophesy in Jesus' name. You can cast out demons in Jesus' name. You can perform many miracles in Jesus' name. You can heal people in Jesus' name. You can be the most spiritual person in this town in Jesus' name. And still, when you get to the day of judgment, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Why? Because it doesn't matter how spiritual you are if you don't repent. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how much you talk about Jesus. Doesn't matter how many people you tell he's your Lord. Doesn't matter how many miracles you do in his name. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are if you don't repent. Jesus said, if you don't repent, you will perish as well. And I believe we have done ourselves a disservice and those we love a disservice by taking out the faithfulness and the invitation that we extend to people. Mark 1.15, Jesus said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news, the gospel. Jesus said, repent and believe. And so for the rest of my tenure here as your pastor, I will stand behind this pulpit and I will preach both repent and believe the gospel.
I will not sacrifice one for the other. One being true does not make the other false. Jesus said both, repent and believe, and I will preach, repent and believe. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. What did you confess? You confess that Jesus is your Lord. We all establish what does it mean for Jesus to be your Lord? It means you obey him. You have repented. So you believe resulting in righteousness and you repent because Jesus is now your Lord. You have turned from sin. You obey him. You, you repented resulting in salvation. Everywhere you read through the New Testament, there, you're going to find both. Repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. That's why Jesus rebuked so many people for not repenting. That's why Paul rebuked so many people within the church for not repenting. Because repenting was a non-negotiable. That's why when you got baptized in Jesus' day, when you came to the river to get baptized, you confessed your sins to the people when you got baptized. You didn't just confess, I believe in Jesus. You confessed, these are my sins. And I am turning from them. And I want you as my church to hold me accountable. That was the picture of baptism. The only people that entered into the church in the New Testament were those who said, I repent of my sins and I believe that Jesus is Lord. That was the only people in the church. We must make sure that when we share the message of salvation with people, that we share the whole message, not part of it. That they must repent and believe. Because if they don't repent, Jesus said, then there's a very good chance when they get to the day of judgment, they're going to call me their Lord and I'm going to tell them you're not allowed to enter because you never repented. We need to tell them now. We can't wait till the day of judgment. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, your entire word from beginning to end is clear. But your word is also difficult. You say a lot of things we don't want to hear. Why? Because we're sinful. That's exactly why. We don't want to hear that we have to repent. We don't want to hear that we have to turn from sin. Why? Because we don't want to. People do not naturally want to have to turn from sin. People naturally enjoy sin. But Father, you've made it clear. Unless we repent we too will perish. And that just calling you our Lord does not make you our Lord. Just calling you our master does not make you our master. Just calling you the one we obey does not mean you are the one we obey. You have told us to repent and believe the good news. And that good news is that you have come to die for us and make a way for us to be forgiven simply through genuine faith in you trust in you that you will save us because no amount of good works apart from faith in you no amount of good works could ever save us we could never save ourselves it is only through faith in you but you have offered us an invitation for us to enter into a covenant intimate relationship with you one in which you have asked us to turn from sin to be faithful to you and so father i pray that everybody understands that clear message.
that we are to turn from sin and be faithful to you to do the will of your Father in heaven. And Father, we thank you for that invitation. We thank you because it is truly, truly good news. Every one of us has to make a choice. Are we going to reject you and continue to live in sin? Or are we going to accept you and turn from sin? And all of us have a choice. And that choice is not made with our mouth. That choice is made with our actions, with our life. It's a real choice. Speaking it doesn't make it true. Living it does. Father, help us. Help us make that commitment to turn from sin to you. I pray if there's a single person listening to this message right now that has not made a commitment to actually turn from sin and live faithfully with you, that they would understand your invitation clearly right now and they would make that decision. We love you, Father. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for pursuing us and chasing us our entire lives. We don't deserve your love, but we are ever, ever grateful for it. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. If you would stand and join us for our last song.